get a clapperboard and be like, no, this is take two. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Overrun Podcast. My name is Ed Bowder. I'm Dan Twester. And I'm Mike DiFilippo. And we are social distancing, as is everybody else presently. And uh, we're going to keep talking about the coronavirus for COVID-19 because that's kind of what's on, uh, what's on everybody's mind. First thing we want to do is we want to do a little bit of housekeeping before the show goes on. First, we want to congratulate Mike DeFilippo, who's on the show with us right now. He is now Dr. DeFilippo, and he'll be starting his, uh, his internship and residency in New York in the not-too-distant future. So congratulations, Mike. Thank you. Yay, servitude. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hooray, I hate having money. <laughs> that's why we go into this right chicks power money and chicks yeah that's, that's the whole it's the entire reason um the other thing that we want to talk about is we've been working with the md1 program here in new jersey to produce videos for education about the coronavirus um there's been videos that have been going out every day you can find it on md1's twitter uh, and we'll be cross-posting some of those things as well. It's a lot of good information, and they're in uh, very digestible little bits. Uh, I think the longest video is about five minutes long, so you can get up-to-date information that way as well. Yeah, uh, you can also subscribe to the MD1 YouTube channel and our channel, Overrun Productions, and see all this stuff as well. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff, a lot of good uh, EMS-based physicians who are sharing their knowledge to keep everybody safe. And while we're at it, we might as well tell you to follow us on social media and do all that stuff as well. Um, Please. And also, if you're if you're a provider right now and you're not following Med Twitter um, or all the FOMED channels, you are missing out. There is new information that's coming out every day. And it's mostly due in part to this novel coronavirus we didn't really know a whole lot about. Um, we do have a lot more information now than we used to, but we're going to kind of let Mike go through some of the pathophysiology that we've learned in the past couple of weeks. Yeah, so to keep in uh, line with our today's episode, just going in updates for COVID-19, specifically for EMS, things I thought uh, would be valuable to, for you to know on the street. Uh, regarding pathophysiology, two big things I want to talk about since the last time we sort of did a COVID update podcast on the overrun. So COVID-19 appears to reduce surfactant levels, leading to atelectasis and derecruitment in the lungs. And this really came about from autopsy studies showing pathological features of ARDS, However, it's unclear if this is due to viral infection itself or ventilator-induced lung injury. The second big thing, uh, as far as pathophysiology is concerned, is now COVID is sort of being understood as a biphasic illness in the sense that the first part of the illness is this hypoxemic respiratory failure slash respiratory distress picture. People get better, and then there's this follow-up cytokine storm, which appears to be the deadly part of COVID-19. And this is kind of what we're seeing in a lot of patients. We can't quite say that this virus follows a predictable path just yet. Um, because you do have a lot of people who are mildly symptomatic or sometimes asymptomatic, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. Um, you can actually see one of the MD1 videos was with Dr. Matt Harris, who's a uh, pediatrician out in Colorado, and he actually was quite sick with uh, with coronavirus. Um, I think he bought four days up in the ICU, and he goes on and, and kind of explains his disease process, and it's, uh, it's pretty interesting. So we're not quite to the point where it has a predictable clinical course, but you are starting to see this more biphasic uh, type of presentation where people will have respiratory problems, the cough, fever, things like that. We also know the fever is biphasic where you'll have a lower fever for the first day or two, and then you'll have a higher fever after day, like plus four or five. 
Um, so it's really interesting to see how this this follows through. And again, this is what we're finding so far. Um, and it, it, this kind of leads to the conversation of, you know, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Because um, there's kind of a lot of stuff on social media out there that's spreading a whole lot of uh, disinformation about the virus and how it spreads and how it gets treated. So what are your thoughts on that, Dan? I, I think it's a dangerous time because we really don't know who this virus is going to attack. You could have two patients and one do completely fine with very mild symptoms or no symptoms or no symptoms at all. You could have someone else, same history, same age, same demographic, and they could be critically ill and proned out and ARDS. And, you know, we usually can select but you can't select with this because we're, you know, we used to, you know, in the beginning phases, we found out that the, you know, we were, we thought that this attacked elderly people and immunocompromised more. As it moved to our, you know, to our country, we found that younger people, um, healthcare providers, it does it. The, I think the thing about this virus that's getting everybody kind of tense is it's not following predictable patterns. There's not, uh, you you really can't diagnostically apply any gestalt to this and i think it's starting it's shaking you know that's what's thrown us for a loop it's a knuckleball well right and i think anecdotally for a long time we and i i've always kind of at least conceptually thought about the the way that we treat this almost like MRSA, where you know for a long time a lot of emts and medics were kind of like oh well we're all going to colonize nurse in the nair MRSA in the nares and now I think you're starting to kind of see a lot of assumptions that people are COVID positive. Um, and there's also a, a fair amount of the population that I think is probably, is probably passing away because they were going to die anyway. And they happen to have coronavirus uh, as opposed to dying from coronavirus. I think that's um, possible. I also, I also think that with this, you're going to see a fundamental shift in EMS and how we approach PPE. Um, you know, just as many years ago when we went through medic school, they touted the white paper as was, one of these big issues in EMS that sort of fundamentally changed EMS. I think this pandemic is going to fundamentally change EMS in the sense that, at least in my experience in EMS culture, we really didn't take PPE that seriously. I mean, I can count on, you know, a million hands how many times I walked into a room with someone coughing and aerosolizing particles all over the place. And I didn't care. I didn't put a mask on. I just put my gloves on and I was like, ah, it's okay. Whereas now, you know, this is kind of putting the fear of Jesus in everybody. Uh, because, you know, this is something scary. It's, it's attacking our brothers and sisters in EMS, and we're seeing young people get really ill. And I think we're just going to move forward from this and, and change the way we sort of appreciate PPE in the future. Well, absolutely. And I think as, a, as an industry, we're kind of cavalier with PPE in the first place. Um, you know, you go into a nursing home and you see nurses come out wearing a gown and gloves and your mask. You're like, we'll be fine. You know? <laughs> oh, yeah. And then just kind of just kind of going about your day, and I think it's it's a reason to give us a lot of pause on how we used to do things. Well, also we don't train our EMT or paramedic students to work in the envelope of PPE. Uh, we talk about them. We we hammer it into their head that they need to know BSI scene safety. We don't go over BSI. So when they have to do things like this, we're unfamiliar with it. We're not comfortable working in it. Um, and our, we've conditioned our responses that we don't ha we quote unquote don't have time to put this stuff on. Um, you know, a couple weeks ago, I attended a cardiac arrest uh, out of hospital. Uh, we got on scene. It was you know I as the I was going to be the airway provider on the call, so I had gown, face shield, mask, uh, eye protection, double glove, the whole 
the whole nine yards video scope ready. And I walked into a room where I had, you know, three EMTs and a police officer who were wearing surgical masks, uh, doing CPR and no gowns, no protection, nothing like that. I mean, and this was a, unfortunately a patient who did screen positive, uh, had been talking about, you know, had some of the signs, uh, obviously not diagnosed. And, you know, that's a real danger here. Um, I remember, you know, I, everybody, every, anybody who follows the show knows that I'm the oldest one on the show and they all laugh at me about it. Um, <laughs> back in my day, back we, in used, my day. we used to drive Cadillac ambulances. <laughs> No, I, I I got out. I got in just after like the last Cadillacs died out. Um, I never had the opportunity, but I did come in around HIV and the bloodborne diseases, where HIV and hepatitis uh, were coming up. Where the big things were the scary things that could kill you. And honestly, for EMS, it was really the first time where you were in a situation where oh wow, I could get exposed to something and I could get killed. Um, you know, before that, you know, everybody has the apocryphal stories of the old timer medics who used to stick their, you know, sharps in the, the bench seat of the ambulance, you know, through the seat cushion to keep them there. Um, you know, I remember old time, you know, I remember senior people telling me going on extrications, coming out covered with blood, and it was a badge of honor. You didn't wash your turnout coat because it showed you were salty and it was this guy, you were that person. Um, HIV kind of was the wake-up call for EMS to think about protecting themselves. And just like HIV, we knew, we, we thought we knew what we knew. We, we thought it was certain populations. We thought it was certain things until it changed. And then everybody was a potential threat. Everybody was somebody who potentially could have it. We learned about people who were asymptomatic, who were shedding virus. We've, we've seen this before. Um, and we tailored our response, you know, again, behind the curve and we lost some people because that's how it happens. Um, we tend to be reactive than proactive, sadly. Um, but, you know, I remember going through that and I remember being, you know, getting serious about gloving up and washing your hands and things like that and not getting exposed to blood. This is a little different. This is an, this is potentially an airborne disease. I mean, it's a droplet disease, but it's also suspended in air for a period of time. Um, you know, is that a, a factor? You know, I mean, I think that is a big factor. And I think the big, the other thing that worries people is, you know, you don't know who has this. You don't. And, and Mike, you can probably expound on this a little bit more, um, you know, about the super spreaders and the asymptomatic, um, you know, carriers. You could you could treat somebody in the field and put yourself to sleep and kind of go like, well, it's a it's a car accident. I don't have to worry about it. You know, they're not covid positive. And then you get a call two days later that their chest x-ray shows ground glass infiltrates and they've got it, but they were asymptomatic. Um, that's a scary thing. And that's something that I don't think that we've ever prepared for. We never gamed it out. We've never trained for it. And we picked it up on the fly. Yeah, I think that's a, a good a good transition into talking about transmission. Um, I mean, you're, de you're definitely right. I'll address uh, point one first. You're definitely seeing a lot of these asymptomatic patients that are being picked up uh, by some other means. For example, a patient comes in the ED with abdominal pain. They get a CT abdomen. 
and uh, the lower lobes of the lungs are seen on the CT abdomen sometimes, and they notice a bilateral pneumonia, so they do a CT chest. And even though the patient's not having any sort of respiratory problems, uh, finds out that they have that classic CT picture of COVID. Um, so I know you also said about the airborne transmission for COVID. Uh, it, Increasingly likely that COVID is transmitted via the airborne route, uh, which just for everyone's refresher is the small particles which remain in the air for longer periods of time as opposed to droplet. Um, the guidelines remain hotly debated as to whether or not people want to use airborne precautions because whether or not it's airborne is still pretty hotly debated. But I think if you talk to anyone in the field treating patients right now, they'll tell you it's airborne. <laughs> um, now, as far as the spread of COVID, since the last time we talked, the r naught was very up in the air. We didn't know like really how infectious it was. Uh, there wasn't a lot of data. However, Coming into the U.S. here, we started seeing a lot more with um, COVID-19 and super spreaders versus asymptomatic spreaders. So super spreaders are people who carry extremely large quantities of the virus with a strong tendency to infect others. And then you have the asymptomatic spreaders who have literally no symptoms but are able to spread this virus. And pretty curious to see how that would go on in the future. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be interesting to see because we also are just starting to find out, you know, that some people don't make antibodies. Uh, it might be possible for reinfection as well. Um, you know, so it, it, it can be it can be problematic as time goes on as well. Um, so I, I think it's going to be kind of interesting to see over time um, how the super spreader thing actually affects people. Um, I do want to go back a little bit on the, the PPE thing because we've we've kind of talked about this off air a lot. Um, and we certainly talk about how we're going to change education because we that's one of the things we talk about a lot. Um, I think that we've kind of done a disservice to a lot of students saying, like, you know, your PPE is your gloves and Godspeed. Um, and I, <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> and I think that that's something that's going to change a lot, you know, because this is one of those things where, you know, Dan, you talked about the HIV and AIDS epidemic. Um, Mike and I are, are kind of, you know, we haven't had an epidemic in our careers, really, you know, we had swine flu and, and things like that. Um, but it, I, I want to talk a little bit about like the, the different feeling, um, you know, where when we're out on the road and we hear like, oh, you know, there's a new swine flu or like when MERS came out um, or even SARS to an extent, you know, there's a new thing, be on the lookout for it. And it was very it was kind of a passive approach, you know, wear a mask if you feel like it. Blah, blah, blah. Um so, so Dan, compare, I guess, the HIV thing to now as far as like how it it feels different from a societal level. OK, this is anecdotal and obviously it's just my experiences. But speaking about HIV uh, as a new EMT in the mid 90s when this was really coming out um, and before like the major steps forward to destigmatizing the illness, uh, there was a lot of. It was scary. It was something that you worried about. But at the same time, it, as long as you were, you, the, there was kind of a, there was kind of a thing that if, as long as you weren't providing like invasive procedures or exposing yourself to blood or body fluids, you were pretty okay. Um, you know, if it was an, a motor vehicle accident or things like that, you know, this is where universal precautions, quote unquote, came in. Um, and then realizing that, you know, that it didn't just attack certain demographics. It was a global disease with a, a global presentation. Um, it, it did change your kind of how you looked at it. This is much, this is much more scary. I think, I, I think 
you know, for the newer people coming up, I think this is the first time they've ever really been exposed to something like this. Uh, I know the last one, you know, we had, a, we did have an Ebola outbreak. We had a couple patients with Ebola travel into the country, but it was t- kind of scary. And we, we kind of jumped on that, like, oh my God, this is a, this is a crisis, but this wasn't as wide, widespread, so to speak. Um, this is scary because you could literally be sitting next to somebody or you could be treating a patient that's completely asymptomatic. That doesn't meet any of the screening criteria. You could be on a trauma. You could be on a witness cardiac arrest and the person could be carrying this. Um, we don't know who has it. We don't know who doesn't have it. And I think that's one of the really scary things. Um, it's, it's just different. it's a different methodology. It's a different way of looking at things. Well, right. And I, I, I agree with you with, you know, the younger people getting into the industry and I hate to sound like one of those, you know, get off my lawn, you damn kids. Um, but I do think, I think it's important to kind of educate the new people coming in. Be like, you're coming into EMS at a time where, you know, we're kind of in a transition phase, like things are what they are, but they're not going to be the same in a year. Yeah, that's Um, correct. Absolutely. and, And certainly, you know, we're we're lucky enough to have people that listen to the show from all around, but you know, we're in New York and New Jersey, which is kind of the epicenter of coronavirus in the United States right now. Um, you know, and it has a very high rate of distribution and we have the highest rate of EMS deaths, um, in the country. And when I'm, and again, when we say high rate, the number, uh, the last I checked was seven, which is seven too many. Uh, uh it's eight, it's eight now. Um, so it's, you know, again, it's, it's eight too many. Um, and you know, but there's, it, it is a as compared to the population it is a low number. But let's talk about what's actually happening in well, our area and why we think that number is higher for where we are than for the rest of the country. So, Ed, can I just point out that on uh, a couple of the Facebook sites, um, New Jersey apparently has half of the EMS clinician deaths from COVID worldwide. Right. Um, the next highest is the country of Italy. Um and I think that's kind of scary. I think that's what's I, my personal feeling is, yes, I know we're a state of seven and a half million, eight million people, whatever, you know, depending on whatever, who you talk to. Um, I don't know what's happening here. And that's kind of concerning to me. When I think that the, the there is a higher volume of patients with coronavirus, I think that's part of it. Um, you know, and I, I one of the things we talk about, like if you're working in New Jersey, you work at least two medic jobs. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of a running gag, which is another thing at a societal level, we should probably reevaluate. Um, but you know, there's a lot of medics that work multiple jobs. So that's another consideration as well. Um, you know, so is it just the nature of the job or is it that we don't do well with PPE? Uh, I I don't, I don't really know. I'm not sure that there's a right answer, but I do certainly think that it's the volume of patients that we see in this area compared to the volume of the population. Mike, what do you think? I think EMS by itself, just, just by the nature of the job puts you at a higher risk of developing this disease in the sense that it's such a shifting environment all the time. One, two, you're dealing with a high volume of patients in a whole different amount of environments. So to decontaminate or to make yourself sterile, so to speak, is, is very hard. Uh, you can try your best, but sometimes, as we all know, shit happens on a job that, you know, goes sideways or you don't even know something happens in your ambulance, for instance, like you know, someone could have decontaminated or someone could have contaminated a piece of equipment without you knowing or, you know, a patient coughed on something you didn't realize because you were doing 10 other things. So 
you know, I think there's a lot of room for error, not necessarily on the EMT or paramedic themselves, but just in the sense of just the job, right. um, one. And two, I mean, you know, I think like we previously said in this podcast, like there's issues in EMS as a whole with taking PPE and then donning and doffing seriously. And like Dan suggested, it's not something we really hammer in in our training. Uh, so there's been a steep learning curve, I would say, for EMS professionals on the large scale to really get donning and doffing down to a, a good science. And with that, unfortunately, comes the error and risk of getting the illness yourself. So I think those are, are major contributing factors. I definitely think I would like to see us as EMS professionals do a retrospective review once this pandemic dies down so we don't repeat these mistakes and issues again in the future and could so, sort of like move forward in a better way from this. Oh, certainly. And I, I hate being the person who's, uh, you know, look, I, we're all looking forward to the end of this, but I'm really interested in the data afterward. Um, I think what we're going to find is going to be pretty interesting. I think the number is going to be fascinating. But something else that we don't really think about is everyone has been, you know, we most places are kind of under a stay at home order, you know, don't go out, you have a curfew at, you know, whatever it is, eight o'clock at night. Um, but also, if you're working in EMS, you don't have your ambulance, right? It's the ambulance. And you have to hope that the crew before you or the crew after you has at least, you know, employed some type of cleanliness procedure to at least the cab of the ambulance, let alone the back of it. So I think the general population kind of has decent control over their environment. And I think we have much less control over that as well. No, I agree 100 um, percent. You know, how many times let, let me, you know, just put this out on a, you know, kind of hypothetically. And to the people listening, like how many times do you wipe off your monitor and your leads and all of your equipment after a call? Uh, you're going to find that it's probably an individual thing. It might be a team thing, uh, but culturally and systemically, it's probably a very rare thing. Why? Because call volumes are up. We're expected to turn around fast and we're expected to get back into service. Um, there is little thought given to proper decontamination of an ambulance, proper cleaning. Um, you know, again, you know, Mike talks about putting on your gear. Um, I, I did for a brief period of my life. I started in the fire service. Uh, I went to the fire academy. One of the first things they ever told us was taught us was how to put your gear on how to wear your equipment properly when was the last time you were in an emt or paramedic course and we made them do a scenario in ppe or intubate with a face shield on uh, i can't we, even think of that we, i can't we, think of one example it, it doesn't happen it, it, you're right well i remember happen. do you guys remember uh it was a few years ago there was a study that came out that showed that the grab bar in the back is actually the dirtiest part of the ambulance do, I don't, do you remember that? We got we we got to find that. And I I, I want to say it might actually have been by Merlin, um, but yeah, there was there was a study that came out. They swabbed the back of the ambulance and the front, and all these different places to find like where all like where most colonized bacteria lived, and it was on the grab bar in the back of the truck. Totally um, makes sense. Uh, well, right, and that and that's kind of the thing where so you would think that a study like that comes out and it would change practices a little bit. Um, which, you know, you're hoping so, that now you would see that, but you would think it would be like the door handle. But we always clean door handles. We clean the steering wheel. We, you know, we think about that, but we don't think about, you know, the bar in the back of the ambulance or like the seat belts. Well, one other thing I'd like to say is uh, as far as like, how are we getting ill from this virus? Um, I don't have the uh, s example ready on hand for, for uh, sourcing it, but I was reading about a Canadian hospital and specifically their ICU. And it wasn't a published study. It was just kind of an inside study for their own ICU. And they were looking at why are our nurses and intensivists getting sick? 
And they actually found that when it came to donning and doffing PPE, it was fine. When it came to patient interaction, they were fine. But they had a bunch of asymptomatic spreaders. And when they would congregate at the nursing station or the physician charting area, they would actually get each other ill. So I also wonder, I, I worked a few EMS jobs where we had, you know, one main base and everyone would hang out. And I do still see pictures of that today on social media of our fellow EMS professionals congregating together, which is important to, you know, to help, you know, de-stress and everything like that. But I wonder how much that also plays into it, that asymptomatic spreading between one another. Well, that'd be an interesting thing in hospitals, too, because a lot of nursing shifts start with a huddle and end with a huddle. You know, like, like talking about the different types of patients that you have. So it'd be interesting to see how that actually changes things, too. Think about residency rounds. I will not. That's Mike's job right now. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, I mean, it's, it's probably difficult, and it's always easy to Monday morning quarterback. We're just spitballing ideas here about how people are getting infected, especially why our Jersey and New York EMTs and, and medics have such a high rate of infection and death. Um, you know, and it's hard to distance yourself six feet from one another. I mean, even in the hospital, I mean, you can try your best, but we're space limited and we're time limited. And we also have to be efficient. We have a lot of patients to take care of. Um, and also there is that part of the job. I mean, this is a super stressful time to be working and the best people to help you de-stress and to help you understand and get through things are your fellow coworkers. So, you know, I think it's a little hard to totally isolate yourself from that. And if my memory is serving me correctly, the way that specific Canadian ICU did fix that problem was isolation. You're not allowed to eat lunch with anybody. You have to stay six feet apart. They actually decrease the amount of staff in certain areas of the ICU to maintain at least six feet of distance between workers. So I wonder if that's something we're going to see implemented here in Jersey or uh, or nationwide. Or if, I wonder, actually, if anyone listening, if your shop is doing that, please like update us. I'm curious how your specific EMS organizations are tackling the social distancing in regards to your day-to-day job in EMS, like taking shift change and stuff like that. One well, is interesting, too. I think that a lot of us don't really have an appreciation for how long or how big six feet actually is. Um, a lot of stores have like six feet increments laid out. And oh, yeah. when you see it, you're like, oh, right, that is how far six feet is. So let's get back to the clinical side here. Um, there are some projects that are actually doing their testing. Uh, Peter Antv down in Davie, uh, Davie County is a friend of the show. Ding. Um, he started putting out uh, tests for his medics because we couldn't, they couldn't get medics back out on the road and they're really sure if they were positive or whatever. So they started doing IgM and IgG tests for these patients. Um, but we have a bunch of different test options that are available now and there's a whole bunch more that are in development. Um, so let's go into that a little bit. So let's talk about the nasal swab and uh, PCR and how we're going to run that, Mike. Right. So the, the main one you're seeing deployed across the U.S. right now is the nasal swab slash the saliva uh, collection. And then these these hope to collect viral particles. So, you know, in the early course of the disease, the virus is believed to replicate in the nasopharynx, oropharynx transition zone. So that's why that deep nasal swab where you get like a good nasty saliva spit, right? And then you send that to the lab to collect viral particles. So there's something called polymerase chain reaction or PCR you may be seeing in the news where there's the RNA, which makes protein, is extracted out and ran through this device, and it detects the genetic sequence and will tell you whether or not this is COVID or not. Uh, there are some pros and cons to that. You know, you can miss windows as the virus progresses, or if you catch someone too early or too late. Um, other things you're seeing are rapid antigen testing, which is, again, just, you know, less accurate than a PCR, but it just detects if there's protein present, specifically the antigen that fights the virus. And then the big thing that we're seeing talked about right now in the media is this antibody testing, right? So you have two different antibodies when you're really talking about COVID-19. Just a little refresher, you know, most of us in paramedic or EMT school were familiar with IgE as the uh, immunoglobulin or antibody that's present in anaphylaxis, right? 
So when you're talking viral infections and, and infections in general, you have IgM and IgG. IgM is your acute phase antibody, which appears about five to 10 days after the illness, whether or not you're having symptoms. It starts to appear five to 10 days after the illness. And that's sort of to help you start building your immune response. Then you have IgG, which is the long-term protection. And that takes about two to four weeks to start getting in production. So the downside with antibody testing is you cannot detect infections really within the first one to two weeks as those antibodies aren't created yet. However, the big positive is that once those antibodies are there, you can tell if someone was infected or is currently infective and able to spread that virus to others. So that's where it's really coming into sense with EMS in the sense that there's a lot of talk, even in the hospital, for physicians and nurses and other allied healthcare providers that we're going to do antibody testing for, for providers. And if they have, you know, IgM, that means they have an active infection right now and they can't come to work, whether or not they have symptoms. Or if they have IgG, at least they would have the knowledge that 99% of the time that their body would be able to fight off this infection and hopefully not get reinfected again with COVID. And that's where, you know, I think the, the antibody test is probably going to be the most efficient one, um, especially now because we know the virus has been around for quite some time. Um, and there's problems with all these tests. And this isn't to discredit you know, that the tests are out there, but you know, the nasal swab and PCR has something like a 30% false negative rate. Um, just because of the amount of time you have to take to actually get the patients to test them. And then you have people who have had the disease and don't necessarily make antibodies to it, which is where we're talking about that secondary, uh, that reinfection. Um, I, you know, these are really good tools we have out there. We have to do something. Uh, we have to test people. And you know, when we talk about medicine in general, whether it's EMS or in hospital, we are we have to have people on staff we have to have nurses in the er we are in on the floor anywhere we have to have techs we have to have physicians we have to have medics you know everybody um so i think it's important to actually start getting these antibody tests rolled out now there's a lot of ways we can discuss the delay in these tests getting rolled out um but we are not a political podcast so we won't do that um yeah, we don't have to pull out my tongues. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's fine. Everything's great. Um, so, no, I mean, so I, I, I do think it's interesting. I think that, you know, it's kind of a rock and a hard place argument, right? We have decent tests that are available for everybody. But as far as it affects EMS, I think, I, well, I say I think, I worry that it's going to be come to work unless you're symptomatic. And that's kind of what we're seeing now. But... I think the issue with that is now you have people who are spreading the disease to patients because they're not symptomatic at work, but it doesn't mean that you're not sick. Right. And I, I think it's going to be a, a logistical issue for EMS in the sense that, you know, all EMS shops seems to be a, a national issue or running already at decreased staff. I can't think of one place that's like, oh, we don't need to hire anybody, but perfectly staffed with medics and EMTs. So I can't imagine well, that this There's is plenty of places that say that, but whether or not they are... <laughs> So, you know, and you're seeing this in the hospitals too, like, you know, the ones that are deploying antibody testing that they're just sending staff home. Uh, and, you know, some are actually saying like, even though you may be sick or, or mild symptoms, we're still going to make you come in because we just literally have nobody else. Um, so that's one thing. The, the second thing is there's concern. And I do share this concern with some other professionals that people are going to go out of their way to get sick. So what if you don't have IgM, you don't have IgG in the sense that you've been lucky and you've actually never actually been exposed to the virus? Like, There's talk about some people saying, oh, I just want to get back to work, so I'm going to purposely expose myself to COVID so I have the positive IgG. And I think, you know, do I think that's going to happen in a massive scale? I hope not, but I think it's going to be a very real thing if this antibody testing gets like, you know, uh, put on big production. So think, there's, there's a lot of ethical issues, too, that arise out of this. 
I think the, I think that attitude is an extremely reckless attitude considering the randomness of who gets a, who gets affected by this, you know, in some, you know, in terms of, uh, severity, you know, you're, you're saying you're going to take the chance of getting exposed to something that potentially could kill you or put you on a ventilator. And the figures I'm getting, Mike, if I'm, if I'm wrong, call me out because you are the science guy for the show. 80% fatality rate for people who go on mechanical ventilation with this. I mean, that is a staggering number. That's a lot of data, Sorry, I didn't Mike. Answer you. I was, <laughs> I, I, oops. No, that's that, that's to me having my mic muted. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, but um, that's that's about in I, line I, to what I've seen as well. I do believe you're right. I mean, one study that I'm just pulling up here just to make sure we're right. I'm seeing a range of between 67 to 97% fatality rate. I mean, 97%, I think is probably a little much. I'd have to look into that specific study a little more. But, you know, I, I do agree that it's reckless. However, you know, EMS in general, right? We we all grew up in this culture, and we all worked in this in, in this environment a lot. And like, we do live paycheck to paycheck. I can think of only a handful of medics and EMTs that don't. And to have your job and livelihood threatened based off of an antibody test, you know, when you're stuck between a rock and a hard place, you know, your kids missing meals or missing mortgage payments or losing your home or your car and your livelihood, then you know, ration you would rationalize getting yourself sick on purpose. And again, you know, I, I really hope this doesn't become an issue and really doesn't become a big thing, but it definitely is something that does need to be talked about, especially if your management at a facility that's talking about deploying this as a means to getting your workers back to work and maintaining a healthy staff. Yeah, so and, it's and not, this, is, this is where it has to be a people argument and not a money argument, which I think we have a problem with in healthcare writ large. So it's a nihilism uh, combined with a cultural issue. And a socioeconomic issue, and we're going to lose people because of it. Yeah, I mean, I, well, we already I, have. I don't think there's, an, I don't think there's an easy answer to it. I just think it's a reality that, you know, for me, for example, I'm seeing a lot of the, the local media and, and national media say, "Oh, yeah, antibody testing is going to be a way we get people back to work," but I really don't see much talk about, you know, the side effects of that. You know, everything has a side effect, whether it's medicine or social issues or something, right? And you know, what's the side effect of this widespread antibody testing going to be? What happens to that person who's negative for both because they followed the social distancing guidelines, they never got sick, but now they're being barred back from work because they have an inconclusive antibody test? You know, will they be allowed to come into work or will the company see that as a potential risk because this person could get infected, not know it, and then, you know, respread it? Are they going to get antibody tested at the beginning of every shift? Like, there's there's a lot of questions and a lot of things. I'm, I'm curious to see how EMS shops specifically and then businesses in general are going to deploy that. And again, listeners, if, if any of you are, are thinking about this or you're the managerial position uh think about deploying this we'd be curious to hear how you guys would think about implementing this in your places yeah and there's there's gonna be a million ways people are gonna try and get everyone back on the road so mike's right we we want to know what you guys are doing we hear things anecdotally but you know we want to at least you know hear ideas directly from you guys so let's talk about some treatments because there's uh, also a lot of bad news about treatments and then we're going to move on to different uh airway presentations for this so we've got a uh, there's, there's been just a lot of bad information out there generally um, about certain antiviral treatments. Specifically, there's a, a malaria drug, and we've talked about this last time, uh, hydroxychloroquine. And, you know, part of the important thing is that we have decent data before we deploy medication. And right now, there's just not good enough data that shows that hydroxychloroquine can help people that have coronavirus um, 
most things that are out actually say it's fairly ineffective. So a lot of people have taken hydroxychloroquine, have gotten better almost independent of the hydroxychloroquine. Like their clinical course was that they were going to resolve anyway. Um, and as such, with some of the news that came out about hydroxychloroquine, there were, I think, two people the other day, well, as we're recording this, uh, who died because they just ate straight chloroquine uh, because the news told them to. So that's something else that we're dealing with. Yeah, uh, I think the, these new treatments, I mean, hydroxychloroquine is, is the most controversial of all of them that are out there right now. I mean, there's a lot of studies that are underway. More studies are needed. The best available evidence as of right now says it's ineffective. Um, but again, sometimes, you know, you're treating these patients and, you know, they're really ill. And, you know, sometimes you're like, you know, what's the worst that could happen if the family is even for it? Like sort of like a compassionate sure. use protocol. Um, the other two big things that I wanted to bring up as far as treatments are concerned that EMS professionals may be starting to hear. Uh, the big one is uh, tocilizumab, which is a monoclonal antibody. So, we hear a lot about the cytokine storm, right? And one of the cytokines that's generated when the body's fighting off a response is something called interleukin-6 or IL-6. So tocilizumab blocks IL-6 and, and thus theoretically will decrease the immune response. It's been very successfully used in treating certain cancers and certain types of arthritis. And uh, it's being deployed now uh, in some areas and some hospitals to treat COVID patients. Uh, obviously still waiting to see more studies, but it looks very promising. The other thing you guys may be hearing is more antivirals in line of styles of med medications that are used to treat HIV or similar style medications to those. Uh, one in particular, remdesivir, uh, studied in vitro, so in the lab, and there is some animal data with MERS, and it's currently experimental, so it's not available commercially, but it may be used for compassionate use protocol. So I just wanted to bring those up to you for the EMS professionals listening here so you're up to date and, you know, if you're giving report or taking report or transporting patients, it's not your first time hearing those medications. So uh, those are the pretty much updates since last time. I mean, it's kind of, we're stuck between a rock and a hard place here. There's not a lot of treatments for it because, you know, we still don't know really how to treat it or the, the natural disease progression. Well, I think that that's kind of is the base level of some of the problems that we're having with treating this virus in the first place is that we do not know how to treat it or how it works. It's very rare that we run into a novel virus like this. Um, but it is, you're right, it is important that EMS providers are aware that the stuff that you hear on the news, which I'm not, I'm, you know, we're not here to bash the news. We could do a whole episode on that independently. Um, you know, but I, I think it's important that you hear about these medications that are not working. And, you know, you'll hear people on the news or in positions of power who say that it does, and they're not correct. Um, you know, yeah, hydroxychloroquine is the the more data that I'm seeing on it, it's it's not ready for prime time. It works for it may work for some people. We still don't know the mechanism, and more people seem to have a harm from it than they have a benefit from it. Um, Mike, you want to jump in on that? Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, there's been a ton of so the thing with hydroxychloroquine, right? It's been obviously so. I'm going to preface this by saying this is not anything about politics. We're very much uh, you know data, facts, not fear. Uh, mantra here on the overrun. So please, you know, keep that in mind as I'm discussing this. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about hydroxychloroquine. I'm going to ignore the, the media talk of it, just the medical talk of it. I mean, there's there's a lot of studies that are coming out. One study will say, oh, this really works. Another study will say, oh, it's just super harmful. Don't give it. I read a study that said it's really good in those patients that are kind of in the gray zone. We don't know if they're really sick. We don't know if they're well. We just give it and hope they get better. And this, maybe they do. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a tough 
tough position to be in. I mean, I know, you know, the only way to find out if it works or it doesn't work is to trial it, right? So right. We're, we're currently in that process right now. And we're not, we don't have the luxury of waiting for animal studies and then clearance by the FDA and then, you know, going through different levels of trials on humans. Right now, it's pretty much, let's see if it works to try and save people. Um, and that's, that's kind of where we're at. I mean, I, I do believe as far as administering some of these medications, whether it's the monoclonal antibodies, the antivirals, or the hydroxychloroquine, it's going to be on a personal basis between the physician and the patient, and whether or not the patient wants to take the risk, and whether or not the physician thinks they're appropriate or a good candidate for it. Because, like all things, to not sound like a broken record, but everything has a side effect, okay? Every medication you take, whether you think it's really safe, has a side effect. And, you know, hydroxychloroquine has some nasty side effects as far as cardiac-related is concerned. Uh, same thing with, with other medications that are given. So there is a real risk of injury occurring to the patient. You know, how sad would it be that the patient, if they didn't receive a medication, would have done well and recovered from COVID, but they died of a complication of the hydroxychloroquine or died of a complication of the monoclonal antibody. So, you know, those are things that all need to be, it's a risk-benefit analysis, essentially. And, and right now we're seeing that play out in real time. So one last thing we're going to get into, and that, this is a hard transition. Um, we're going to talk about different types of pulmonary injury that are associated with this, and then we're going to do something a little bit fun. Um, so real quick, we are going to link, um, I think it was, it was MRAP, Mike? Yeah, it was an MRAP video with Dr. Ken Zafrin, who's an emergency medicine physician at Stanford and also the associate medical director for the Himalayan Rescue Association, which is pretty this, cool. And this dude is a rock star. So he actually lives in Alaska, and he just flies down to Stanford once a month to teach, which I thought was kind of funny. <laughs> wow. <laughs> just, just, eh, going to go down to L.A. for a little bit, see what's going on, and then I'll, uh, I'll come on back. <laughs> I'm that good. So, but he, he made an interesting case and it's a short video. As I said, we'll link it in the show notes, but he goes into kind of a quick review on VQ mismatch. One of the things that's come out a lot um, is you'll see that it's not actually ARDS, but it's actually a pulmonary injury that's similar to high altitude pulmonary edema. Um, if you're anything like me, if you're watching this, you kind of like short answers. Um, the host of the show asked the doctor, and again, this is Dr. Zafrin, asked him like, is this the pulmonary illness that we're seeing in COVID-19, is it high altitude pulmonary injury? And he goes, no. That's it. <laughs> yeah, very straightforward. <laughs> end, end the video and end the discussion right there. Um, he, he goes on fairly at length. As I said, the video is about 10 minutes long. Um, but he goes on to mention why and how you see things change. He goes into the different types of uh, high altitude pulmonary injury. You see there's actually two different types. You have a low elastance problem. Um, then you have additional issues that go on where you actually have, you go from low elastance to ARDS. Um, again, it, it is kind of a detailed thing. Um, I, we might actually just end up doing a separate episode on this for a bit because there's a lot to go into through here. Um, but Mike, give us a, give us like a two minute recount or recap on this, uh, beyond what I just said. Right. So here's the quick two minutes and, and I apologize if some things are breezed over or may appear wrong, but just trying to get the big picture for everybody. So in, in COVID, right, as the lung injury progresses, we, we hear about something called a VQ mismatch or ventilation perfusion mismatch. Ventilation, obviously bringing the oxygen in, perfusion, obviously moving the blood around. And the problem we see is that blood flow to areas of the lung without much oxygen leads to wasting of that blood flow and then hypoxemia, right? So the, the, the lungs specifically, in contrast to the rest of the body, when there's low oxygen levels, the lungs vasoconstrict. So it reduces flow to low oxygen states and thus prioritizes flow to areas with high oxygen, right, to help with... Uh, oxygen exchange. There's a belief that the 
the lung injury we're seeing in COVID is actually high altitude pulmonary edema and not ARDS. It's very hotly debated. Um, most experts are saying no, but there are a few that are, that are banging the drum really loudly saying yes. So high altitude pulmonary edema. The whole lung has low oxygen, right? So it's very high in the altitude, not a lot of oxygen. This results in global pulmonary vasoconstriction of the whole lung. This increases pulmonary artery pressure and increases the pressure in the arterioles leading to leakage and pulmonary edema. So you get pulmonary edema from the high altitude because of the vasoconstriction. There's a correlation to a certain type of COVID lung because of globally decreased oxygen with a theoretical hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction. So in the sense that the lungs look fine, there's no pulmonary edema, but for some reason, there's just a low oxygen level. So that's where this correlation was sort of taken into place. However, a lot of doctors are, are, are just saying it really is just an ARDS. So I, I would encourage you to go watch that video from MRAP with uh, Dr. Ken Zafrin. It's very good, very informative. Like Ed said, it's a little less than 10 minutes, and it would explain to you what high-altitude pulmonary edema is, what type L uh, – type L COVID lung is, type H COVID lung, and, and we're seeing sort of a transition. The, the real question is, the meat and potatoes is, why are these patients having normal lungs without pulmonary edema, but a very low oxygen level, right? The happy hypoxemics that we, that we may be seeing. And there's a lot of debate about it right now because the real answer is we have no idea. These patients have low oxygen, but normal gas exchange and no pulmonary edema. And the two big questions are, is it due to a lack of regulation leading to hypoxic vasoconstriction, which is similar, but not the same as high altitude pulmonary edema? Or is it a microvascular problem like microthrombi? And that's currently being investigated. We know there's a hypercoagulable state in COVID. Is it multiple microthrombi causing this low oxygen level? We're not sure. So that's something if you're, if you're really watching the edge of, of this COVID uh, research, this is something that's super hot topic right now. I'm going to throw out and say happy hypoxics would be a really good band name. Just yeah, that's that's, yeah. that's what I got out of that. <laughs> well, Mike, is that why is that why we're starting to see um, patients going on anticoagulation? You're seeing people go on heparin yes. or Lovenox or things like that as almost a prophylaxis, like um, like you would with almost DVTs or pulmonary emboli. Yes, 100%. So the, the guidelines as they are right now, uh, to my knowledge, are that any hospitalized patient with COVID is to be put on anticoagulation, period. And there's even talk about COVID patients that are out of hospital that test positive for COVID. The question is, do we do them on a short-term anticoagulation, uh, like, you know, a Coumadin uh, titer, a Coumadin um, pack or something for a little while until the COVID's, you know, out of their system, so to speak. Uh, again, that's an area of, of really hot research right now. You know, that was something that was debated even up until like a week ago when a week ago, everyone's like, oh crap. Yeah, we all agree. This causes some sort of coagulopathy, but we're not exactly sure what. So, and that's going to be a big thing that we're going to find out probably in the next month or so as, you know, yeah. more and more research goes on. Um, but as Mike said, we're going to post that in the show notes. It's a really good video. It's really good information. Um, and if you're not following, as I said, if you're not following things like that on Twitter, um, you need to because that's where you're going to get more information. Hey, Ed, just one more um, plug for a, another uh, FOMED resource that was really, really good. Um, you know, we we invoked the name of Scott Weingart thing Dang. lots of times. Uh, MCRIT did a uh, really, really, they're doing a lot of work on this. They're, they're in one of the epicenters and uh, they're talking to a lot of people. Um, they did a, um, he did a, a call in, um, almost like a, uh, webinar 
uh, on critical care medicine with COVID, um, talking about a lot of these things. Like I said, it's about a week old, so some of the stuff might have changed, but I think some of it is still relevant. If you get a chance, uh, we'll link to that, and uh, it's worth the 45 minutes just to sit there and listen to what a bunch of critical care and intensivist uh, physicians with an emergency focus are uh, trying to do to keep people alive. Yeah, it was it was a really good bit um, that they put out. And again, it's, you know, it's everyone just kind of sitting in their office, just kind of talking about what's going on. That's kind of been the most jarring thing for me is seeing all the people running podcasts just kind of sitting, you know, in their office just instead of actually, you know, in a studio or with a green screen behind them. Yeah. Is this the first FOMED disease? Is this is this the first? is this the first disease that is actually just being studied and discussed? And, you know, is this FOMED's moment to show where it really belongs in the world of medicine? I, I think it could be. That's a yeah. good question. I think yeah. so. I'm trying to think. I mean, I mean it's, cer- really it's certainly the most 2000, 2008, 2010. Yeah. It's certainly yeah. the most significant thing. Um, cause, cause, cause I can know, tell we're, you, we're all, this- we're all worried about SARS and MERS and like that, but yeah. you know, because I, I can tell you that like the the stuff that's coming out on FOMED like hourly from really really top level people is you know is just amazing and it's it's practice it's almost not practice changing it's practice evolving yeah. um, you know the idea of using a plastic drape sheet to protect you while you're intubating uh, the idea of video laryngoscopy over direct for these patients. Um, you know, use it, you know, how to modify your PPE to make it as effective as possible. This isn't coming from the literature. This is coming from smart people sitting in their IC or sitting in their ED or in their break room going, how the hell am I going to manage? What if, what if we did this and maybe it'll work? Yeah, that's actually, that's really interesting. It's a good question. It's like the first crowdsourced epidemic. Wow, that's a headline. You should you missed your you missed your, uh, yeah. your calling writing copy from the Times. <laughs> I missed a lot of calling things. A... <laughs> Just right. ask my wife. Yeah. So, <laughs> so we know, uh, you know, during this this kind of trying time, we want to try and keep things a little bit light from time to time and have some enjoyable things, um, since the world is on fire. So, we talked about this off the air, and this is kind of a conversation I want to have. Guys, what have you been watching or what have you been engaging in to keep yourself sane? And why is Tiger King the right answer? Tiger King. King, King. I'm I'm going to disagree. Um, (laughs) I I will not watch Tiger King. I have nothing to do with it. Uh, I'm going to give you one plus and one minus. Um, The plus is I've taken advantage of HBO. Uh, HBO Go is free for the month of April. If you just sign up online, you get the app and you can stream pretty much a decent amount of their catalog. Uh, I've been into Veep. I've been into Veep. Uh, I started the Julia Louis-Dreyfus series and it is hilarious um you know especially with you know the election and our government the trials and tribulations and stuff going on it's you know it, it, it i just think it's hilarious and you know she's she's done it's just phenomenal it's phenomenal to just watch that show uh my one negative is i would give this as a as a solemn plea to the networks that are doing this could you please Please, for the love of all that's holy, can we stop the Harry Potter marathons? <laughs> okay, seriously, we get it. Um, but we don't need to see all six movies or seven movies all the time, all weekend on a loop. Um, 
can you just stop? We, we, we've all seen them. We know what happens. Please find something else. Give me Lord of the Rings or give me death. I will let you, that'll be my, my compromise. You swap out Harry Potter for Lord of the Rings and I'll do that every day. <laughs> that'll, that'll, that'll be my thing. Um, Mike, what have you been watching? Uh, Star Wars is always, but that's not different than pre quarantine <laughs> times. But, but that's just um, that's just Monday for me. We uh, we also took advantage of the HBO thing. We re- re- uh, rewatched Westworld, which I have to give a plug for. for. That's an awesome show. Uh, we have Hulu TV. We don't have cable here, uh, so we we're watching a show called Superstore, which is just a sitcom, but it's hilarious. I'd recommend everyone watching it. And uh, that's pretty much it. I mean, I was lucky in the sense that we decided to get a home gym shortly before the pandemic hit. So just hitting the weights at home uh, and going from there. The mission to Dr. Swole. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. DeFilippo is going to be yoked. <laughs> I, um, I went back into the, uh, the catalog a little bit. I've been watching a lot of parks and rec. Um, oh, good. Uh, call. I listen, I, I'm a big fan of the office. Uh, I like what Michael Shore has always done. So I jumped into that and I, I never really paid attention to it when it was out because it was kind of a contemporary of the office. Um, it is, it is laugh out loud funny, which is saying a lot for me. I don't find a lot of things funny. Um, I will say I have, uh, those that have listened to the show previously and those, some of those that haven't, uh, they know that I am a, I have almost a fetish level interest in bad films. Um, and I'm finding that there's just so many of them out there. Um, I'm going to, if you're interested in that, if you get amusement from terrible films, I'm going to recommend a film called The Lost Skeleton of Cadavera. Um, it is extraordinarily bad. It's very, very bad um, to the point of being hilarious. So give that a look. Uh, there's also a video on Amazon called Velocipastor, which is a film about a pastor who gets turned into a velociraptor. Yes. <laughs> What I'm, I'm intrigued. <laughs> um, it's that's that's the story. That's it is. It's exactly what it sounds like. There's a pastor, and he gets cut by a raptor's claw, and he gets turned into a velociraptor, and that's that's the movie. That's what happens. Um, How does he preach when he's not capable of speech? Oh, you rhymed. Um, he doesn't. Uh, <laughs> he ends up being like a crime fighter, but I'm pretty sure the budget to the film was about seven dollars. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah. so it's like hard budget. Yeah. Yep. Um, so that's <laughs> on Amazon Prime. Trip. Yeah, exactly. It's on Amazon Prime. It's available. So uh, check that out if you need 90 minutes of wondering what's going on on the television. So um, we went through a lot. I hope you guys enjoy the recommendations. I hope you, uh, you like everything that we've suggested. We want to know what you guys are doing. This is a ever-expanding and ever-changing type of time in medicine. As Dan said, this might actually be the first FOMED illness that we've seen. Um, so we're interested in what you think and what you've seen. We're at over on productions at gmail.com and also all the uh, social media sites as well. Check out the MD one program. You'll see daily updates and uh, also check out the med school medic podcast and the glam podcast for everything on the over on productions and for the over on podcast. I'm Ed Bowder. I'm Dan Truster. Mike DiFilippo. And we'll talk to everybody next time. Wash your hands. Wash your hands.